I'd like to thank my sponsors, Celsius, Equus, and Round the X for making this episode possible. Stay tuned later in the episode for more info. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times a week we talk to your favorite personalities in the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, art, music, politics, sports, basically anyone else with a story to tell. The show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. If you like the podcast, you follow me on Twitter, check out my website and join my newsletter. You can do both those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. I got to say, I'm more excited for this conversation than I have been uh, for, for quite a few of them in the past that I've been really pumped to talk to Mike. So he, he's a senior commodity strategist with decades of experience now working for Bloomberg Gathering Intelligence. Uh, Mike began his career hustling his way down Wall Street to eventually become an expert trader and visionary. Having seen and experienced it all, I now have the luxury here to find out how much of Hollywood resembles the, the real Wall Street. So Mike McClone, man, it's awesome to have you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's, it's great. Uh, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. That's quite the uh, intro. I, I um, started in the trading pits in the 80s. I've been in, in Chicago. I've been in New York for almost 30 years. They haven't kicked me out yet, but so far, so good. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't wait to hear your perspective. I think that all of us sort of have this uh, trading places vision from the movie of what it was like in the trading pits and back in the day on Wall Street when traders were really on the floor. So kind of touched on in the intro, the Wall Street view, and that's how I've always viewed it. So I love hearing the real stories. Can you give us a bit, I guess, of your background, how you even became a trader, got into it, and uh, we can start there. Well, I, I, we it was probably one of the most quoted movies when you work in the trading pits was lines from that movie. So uh, <laughs> it was kind of fun. I, I think I actually didn't really see it until a few years ago, the whole thing, because I just knew it from everybody quoting it. But now I started in, in the, uh, I, I grew up about 25 miles south of the Chicago Board of Trade. So boom, that was easy. I got out of college. I was just, you know, bored to death for a desk job, started there. Been in New York since and short term, uh, make a long story short, I've been really um, at Bloomberg for almost, I'm going on my fifth year now. And at Bloomberg, what I do is I'm commodity strategist. I picked up really covering cri cryptos three years ago right during the boom of 2017 and then, you know, was able to really pick the peak and then ride the, the decline in 2018. But the key thing I like to point out is I'm completely neutral. And I love that having been at both buy side and sell side of the street and you can't see this in the podcast, but you can see it. I have no hair left. I'm trying to trade. <laughs> They'll be and, able to see and, it. Whoever, those who watch it on YouTube will see it. So no problem. But it's the, um, the unbiasedness that I really enjoy. And I, you know, as an, more mature person, I can say that I'm, my primary goal is to publish on the Bloomberg terminal and get the story right. And um, I'm quite bullish on Bitcoin, um, gold, and a lot of the macro. And my main purpose here is, like I said, is getting it right. And if I don't, I won't get the readership. I won't, uh, people, you know, won't care. But um, so admit, no selling product. Just, this is the unbiased view from a Bloomberg institutional standpoint. So it sounds like you've sort of as you said, you've done buy side, sell side. Now you're more in the uh, analysis and, and information side of things. So, you know, having seen every single side of it, which part of that have you enjoyed the most? Uh, where I am now. It's the best. <laughs> I like to say, you know, when you have a P&L and you've got kids, my kids are gone now, I'm an older. It, it's really tough. It can be really hard when you're, you're down a, a lot of money and you have to think about those next uh, um, wife sells there's tuition bills due and food bills due and things like that. That's really hard. It can be very hard. So only, I only view one out of 10 traders every do well, very do well. And that's why I want to warn a lot of our trading audience. Stick with the, 
buy and hold macro. Trading can really be difficult and there's an army out there against you. Um, but what I, I really enjoy what I do here because I get to use everything I've learned, almost everything I've learned in education and experience and put it to use. Um, and I really enjoy it because Bloomberg gives, you know, they, we have editors, but they give me really a free hand on what I want to write about within, you know, limits as long as it's being edited properly. And um, as you'll be able to hear in this podcast, I, I have a bit of a Southside accent. Um, so <laughs> they help with my writing, Southside Chicago, that is. Um, but that's it. And, and that's one thing. So I sit in front of this t- terminal, um, which I've been using for 20 years, and there was this wealth of information. For instance, just now I was looking at debt, U.S. debt to GDP versus the world, the price of gold and the potential peaking dollar. And I just can get all the data I want right here and then put it in a good graphical format and publish on it. So it's really easy. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, I love doing the same thing, but I do not have a Bloomberg terminal. Can you tell me why they are so expensive? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I remember asking the same question, and I'd like to defer that one. Let's get back into the subject. <laughs> okay, I'll pass on that one. Though, but one day I'm going to get one. I'm convinced, definitely. So I want to go back to uh, your your days starting in Chicago. Um, I mean, I think I read that you were uh, you know you answered the phones or you were you were, you you worked at a desk or something to start, and then sort of transitioned from that into trading. Can you talk about that experience and? being there when there was no digital, you know, it was all literally done in the pits. My first day in the pits was in 1988 in Chicago board trade. I was a phone clerk. I'm one of those guys sitting in the phones and arbing trades into the, at the time was world's busiest um, futures pit. It was a um, bond futures at Chicago board trade. And so I would speak to institutional customers, buy or sell treasury bonds or options or everything. And that's what I did. Um, and then eventually, but all my customers were institution. My job was to have an opinion to help them hedge or make money or um, hedge portfolios and things and hedge um, interest rate risk and commodity risk. And then I came to New York in 93 and um, I've been in numerous different positions here, not really because of my choice. I think it's been three different bank mergers since you get to severance and you move on. And uh, that's how I got to Bloomberg and I just hope to stay here for a long time. So what was life like in the pits? I've heard John Najarian and other people talk about it, that it was more of a, it was, he, he likened it more to like a football game than actually uh, participating in finance and said that they were actually looking for athletes like him who are huge and can jockey position and basically crush their competition physically just to get their orders in and out. A lot of ex-athletes, and I like to say, I'll give them a little bias. Us, Those of us who work in the trading pitch of Chicago, which was a much different setup, was much more obnoxious. I mm-hmm. remember coming to New York um, Stock Exchange in the early, late 80s and early 90s, like, well, this is sissy stuff compared to what we do. Our trading pits were not booths. They're just massive pits, and there'd be 300 people. And they, I remember the Eurodollar Futures Pit had up to 500 people crammed in there, and it, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes I could judge volume by the smell. I mean, men smell when, and people smell when, they, when they're trading hard. And you can tell by if it was a really busy day by the smell of human beings sometimes. But it was the it's best crazy. and the worst. I knew that my day one, I started there, this was going to be shifted to electronics. And here we are. And, but I knew it was probably the best place in the world to learn business, learn markets, learn, um, really learn macro and actually dealing with people fast. And so I spent five years there and it, it really made my foundation to everything I do now is really trickled up from that. I'm curious about like the brass tacks though, because it seems like it would be impossible to put it in order, know that it was received, be able to get a confirmation and then to balance all that by the end of the day. I just, I don't even understand how it was done 
by human beings in that environment screaming at each other. Oh, you see the ticket, write the ticket. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just seems like everything would be wrong by the end of the day. How, how is that possibly efficient or? Go ahead. I just told you a hundred at the market. I mean, it was the way it works. And when you come down there as an observer, it looks like chaos. But every person is dealing with another person. You know the signals. There's duty. There has been a lot of errors. There used to be a lot of errors, but you work them out. I mean, humans figure things out like this virus. We'll get over it. We'll figure it out. But it worked well. There was things called out trades that could be a problem. There was a lot of human human uh, interaction. And one way I like to describe it is down there, if you mess with someone, you had to deal with them the next day. So you didn't mess too much. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of testosterone flown, uh, floating around. But I have a brother who left the pitches now is in real estate. He says, compared to the trading pits, it was much more civil down there because you had to deal with these people next day. So you got to be careful. And you hear the F word a lot and things like that. But, you know, it was all very professional. And then, of course, there's areas of it that were like you see in Wolf of Wall Street that I never was exposed to. I was always a corporate family guy. So my adult kids would tease me about that. My guys, just think, just imagine what it was like, 5,000 young 20-somethings making a lot of money. What do you think? Use your imagination. I was just never involved in that side of the business. I used, I just, I, I got my MBA at night at DePaul University, and it was just, I loved that dichotomy of being in the trading pits during the day and at night learning the, um, the theory behind markets. Major difference. Just seems like the learning curve would be so steep down there. Like you would just have no idea what was going on. It seems like one of those t complete trial by fire sort of situations. But, um, you know, now everything obviously has moved completely online. It's funny. You talk about how you had to be civil, even in that aggressive environment and you, people don't have to be that way anymore. It's, it's funny, just a total separate conversation, but how obnoxious and rude and, you know, people can be online when they don't have to face that person the next day. I mean, I'm in my forties. So same for me. I mean, when I was a kid, if someone if you wanted to say something to someone or troll someone, you had to actually say it to them <laughs> and deal with the consequences, right? That's one thing I really enjoy. I'm adjusting to them really into the new digital world and everything. But when you hear some of these um, unpleasant things I get on social media, um, I'm like, okay, so you're 17 in your mom's basement. If we were in a trading pit together, I don't think you'd be speaking to me like that because it never really happened to me too often. It was just because it's just, I'm not the kind of person you usually mess with only because I just was kind, but it helps to be, have to carry a big stick sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Have to use it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it all day. It's just the nature of the beast at yeah. this point. So, so I know that you, you, you yeah. yeah, you focus very heavily on macro. So I want to talk about that, especially, um, haven't really had anyone on who can give much perspective on what to potentially expect with the election coming. Um, and how, how you feel that it might be affected. I mean, obviously, we have some history behind us to see how, you know, markets have performed uh, in the months leading to elections. But dare I say, the most dangerous words this time feels a bit different. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering your perspective on it. Yeah, I'll, I'll be, I haven't published on this yet, but I'll give you my simple thoughts as I can do it. I think Biden's going to be elected. Partly, I think there's a few key reasons, reasons here. First of all, the economies, when you ask yourself, are you doing better than you were four years ago? Most people say no. And remember last time we had a very contentious election. It was very close because we had a Democratic candidate, first female in history. That was kind of dicey. I mean, not I'm for or against it. Just think of the population. Yeah, not ready absolutely. For it. Now, yep. we have a middle-of-the-road candidate, massive amount of people behind it. And a key question, has our current president's um, Support, support increased or decreased from four years ago? And I suspect it's not increased. So to me, the simple fact is we're probably going to get a Biden presidency, which means we're likely to get higher taxes on, as he says, the wealthy in corporations. And that's a good way to get votes because 
they don't vote as much as the middle class, which is where I'm from, the mid- in between states. Um, so to me, it's likely going to be the case. And I don't think people have considered the fact yet that we might not have a close election, particularly if we continue to see a decline in the stock market. So how that's going to affect cryptos, I don't really know yet. I, we have a bunch of people in BI who cover the actual companies and blockchain, and we're discussing this lately. I don't really know yet, but one key point I, I make is, as far as CBDC, central bank digital currencies, there's a trend there that's unstoppable, the way I see it right now. And the way I look at it is, first of all, we're, it's just a matter of time. Just like you and I use paper money, and we've never really considered, yeah, and since we got young enough, or old enough, then we started using credit cards, and now some of us wouldn't even bother mm-hmm. to pay that 2 to 3% exchange or transaction fee, which is obnoxious in a zero payment world. But if you look at simple trends in stable coins, let's look at Tether, it's 15 billion now, just a couple of years ago it was one or two. The trend is your friend, people want it. It's just a matter of time um, that we will be all transacting, I think, uh, um, through central bank digital currencies without um, like Visa or MasterCard or American Express taking two to 3% of every transaction, they should have problems. And I've been, I was just knocking that around with my colleagues this, um, just before we spoke. So I don't know what's going to take to end this. So that's one thing I see happening. And I don't know how the election is going to affect that, but I'm happy to listen to your views or anybody else's because I need to write about it soon. I need to have an opinion and then back it up with data. I have mixed opinions on central bank digital currencies. It's something I've thought about and looked into a lot. I mean, at the top end, I think, and with, with obviously um, Bitcoin in mind, um, at the very top end, I think that it's bullish in the fact that people will learn to have a wallet, they'll learn to transact digitally, they'll just be familiar with something that right now is probably the greatest barrier ent- to entry for them to come in, right? They just don't know how to do it and they're scared of it. The flip side of that obviously is privacy. We love cash for a reason. Um, and you're not going to be able to privately transact with a central bank digital currency. They want your taxes. They take the taxes out of your wallet. They want to know what transactions you've had. They can see every single one, every deposit. So my hope is that that would also, in theory, although I don't like it, would be bullish for things like Bitcoin, where people would now be familiar with transacting digitally, but would seek the option that allowed them a bit more privacy and control over their transactions. But that's sort of my top view of it. I don't know how you feel. Well, I think that's the key thing. Governments love it because of the tax man. You can track it directly. That's the thing about paper money. It's hard to track. Is a simple lesson my father taught me, who's an accountant, said, um, you know, when it comes to doing paper transactions, you can hide that from the IRS. Not that you want to, but you can much easier. When anything hits anything electronic, IRS is going to see it. So I'm sure governments, that's why I think it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of how it's worked out with, certainly in this country, with our rules of um, independence and freedom. But I'm not uh, really, I don't know how that's going to happen, but I just don't see how we're going to stop it. Um, in terms of, you touched on it, the expectation of what will happen after the election, but then how that would affect Bitcoin. What's your view on the correlation or inverse correlation of Bitcoin to other assets, uh, I guess, historically and now? So um, right now, let's point out that on a 12-month simple basis, and most measures, 52 weeks, Bitcoin is, a, is the highest correlation ever to gold. Now, we'll start with 12 months. It's about 0.7 on a one scale, um, which is pretty high. On 52 weeks, it's about 0.5 or so, so which is not Modern. so high, but it's the yeah. highest ever. So to me, that's a trend that's going to continue, and it's partly because Bitcoin is becoming more digital version gold. Now, there's a fact. It's the correlations are picking up. 
Um, and I think it's really disengaging from the equity market. What I see happening right now is there's a transition from equities going up and Bitcoin going up. So here's the fact. Um, when the stock market stops rising or when it enters a bear market, and I didn't say if, at some point it will. I just don't know when. That will encourage more QE, more debt to GDP, which is a classic bullish foundations for gold and Bitcoin now, because Bitcoin is becoming more of a digital version of gold. The significance I find with Bitcoin that I find really unique as a commodity strategist, I've never seen a commodity that has limited supply that will not be impacted by higher prices, i.e. As of next year, Bitcoin annual supply is going to drop to 2% for the first time in history. And that's significant because that's a historical average increase in gold supply. And then it's going to continue down and never go up despite price going up. So for me as a strategist, price going down. The only thing that matters and when I try to determine where this price is going is adoption and demand. And all my indicators are positive as they are for gold. So you, you started with correlations, I'll end there. I think what's happening is we're in the middle of that inflection point where Bitcoin is becoming less, um, less pulled lower when the stock market drops or pulled higher when the stock market goes up and it's becoming more like gold, which is going to be more inverse. And I think in the next five, 10 years, as we at some point we get a bear market in the stock market and a bull market, accelerated bull market in gold and Bitcoin. I just don't think both, and people need to think, the way I like to characterize Bitcoin is, it should go up like it has been for the last 10 years, but nowhere near the same velocity. Well, that's the sign of a mature market and asset though, correct? I mean, the, when, when, when a bit of the volatility disappears as much as it's not fun for traders, that's actually what you're looking for if you're looking for a store of value, correct? Exactly. And that's one thing I like to show a lot in the term. I point out how Bitcoin volatility has been going down, stock market volatility has been going up. And one good example, if you look at annual volatility in Bitcoin, 260 day, it's the lowest ever versus the NASDAQ. It's, it's about two times the NASDAQ 260 day volatility. Now that's um, weekdays um, because apples are apples. It's the lowest ever. And so where's that going? At some point, it means to me, Bitcoin's becoming less risky versus the NASDAQ. And I like to use NASDAQ partly because it's the main about the same price. <laughs> yeah. NASDAQ peaked about 12,000 about the same time Bitcoin peaked about 12,000. They're both just above 10,000 now as we speak. Um, and at some point, I suspect there'll be a disengagement which will favor Bitcoin. So let's look at like 2017, they both met about the same level. They've been one to one since Bitcoin versus NASDAQ. That was around 6,000. And at some point, Bitcoin should break out higher, um, I think, based on historical um, measures, based on the NASDAQ stock market being essentially the most expensive ever versus GDP. And this volatility indication that, um, as you pointed out, is Bitcoin's becoming a mature asset and its volatility is declining. It's interesting. I don't think retail traders think about volatility at all, right? Because uh, especially in crypto, they're technical analysts and they look at a chart and you know hope that they're right. Can you talk about the importance of looking at volatility in general and why it's such a leading indicator for what's likely to happen? Well, that's some of my background. I, I was, um, as I matured in the trading pits, I was an options trader um, and became the New York as an over-the-counter options trader. When you're an options trader, volatility is what matters the most. Yeah. To me, it's all about volatility. So here we have a, like a volatility weighted. So um, volatility weighted is a way you can measure um, performance. For instance, if you have something, an asset like um, the dollar that trades with an annual volatility of 5%, if it goes up 5%, an asset that's correlated that trades with volatility 10% should go up twice as much. 
So that's why I like to characterize right now. So if you look at Bitcoin on the year, it's up about 50% and gold's up about 23%. Now this is to, uh, we are to um, September 24th. Now volatility weighted, Bitcoin should be up more. I get that because it trades about four times typically that of Bitcoin, but that's a key thing for, it's also gives you some great indicators. So if people aren't looking at it, great. It gives me more value. If the younger traders aren't looking at it, it's great. They're probably much more algorithm-driven, but it gives me more value. So one of the key indicators I had for Bitcoin breaking down when it was on its way down in April was volatility got, and this was 2018. It was volatility, 30-day volatility dropped to its lowest in, I don't know how, how long. And then when it broke back up, volatility got really, was too low. But here's the big picture for volatility. Um, the VIX, the VIX volatility index is a measure of volatility on S&P 500. One of my key indicators, one of my best calls I had was in 2008, was a VIX bottom at an all-time low in 2007. Now, you look like a 200-day average. And all it did, one thing to remember about volatility, it's always mean reverting. Not prices, but volatility, always right. mean reverting. What happened in 2018? At the end of 2017, the VIX again, the 200-day average, dropped to its lowest ever in the history of the index. So my, all, my indications was volatility is going to mean revert in the stock market. And it just looks for a reason. <laughs> so that's how we look at it. I look at it as when it's that low, it'll find a reason. Markets will, and that's what happened. And since then, we've had volatility increasing. We've had this massive um, decline in the stock market. Now, Bitcoin followed, but gold's been rallying. So that's why I think we're getting that divergence where we're going to have a underperforming period in the stock market and gold and Bitcoin continue to rise. But it all started, my signal started at the end of 2017 with the VIX dropping to the lowest level ever. And that's a measure of volatility. So there's big picture and there's narrow picture. So it's just different ways to look at it. Well, in the crypto community, I've been willing to die on the hill of uh, no correlation between the S&P and Bitcoin. And I'm one of the few who's actively trading. It's uh, will it, been willing to uh, stand on that. It's more actually my argument, if you need to find something that... Um, Bitcoin has been more inversely correlated to the dollar if you look at price action, but by that same argument, so is everything else, right? I mean, you look at it, it's kind of what you talk to, but you know, dollar down, Bitcoin up, you look at the charts of the two and it's literally, you know, opposing peaks and valleys yeah. the, the whole way across. So here's a question for us, you, me and the audience. If, if we wake up tomorrow and the S&P 500 is down 10%, where do you think all assets are? We all know that answer. Right. It's down 5%. It's just, that's the way it is. So here's the fact is, um, things like the Bloomberg Commodity Index. It has the highest correlation to the S&P 500 ever on a 52-week basis, on a 12-month basis. Same with copper, the highest correlation. Why? Because that's all that has mattered for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And that is partly because we all know what's happened. We have massive amounts of QE. The U.S., um, the world's decline, especially the Fed, is plunged, you know, pressured interest rates lower, helping support the stock market. But we're at a point where I think we're near an apex. So, Correlations are all high when stock markets drop, but we're at that point where I think at some point we're going to have a disconnect, which I think in the next five, 10 years is really going to favor, favor solid stores of value like gold, Bitcoin, real estate. I mean, it's happening and, you know, precious metals and maybe, maybe some stock, you know, in, in, you know more income producing equities. And maybe tech stocks, <laughs> but um, well, yeah. If you, that's one thing I've been doing a lot of lately is I've been analyzing the, um, the uh, S&P 500 relative to the world, S&P GDP relative to US GDP, and it's near the highest levels ever. So yeah, maybe we can, maybe it's different this time. Amen if it is. 
But that's when I think prudent relative value investors are reallocating and seeing the value of Bitcoin. Now, we're seeing that a lot with MicroStrategy is one good example. We're seeing that with other people getting in hedge funds. We're seeing that in gold. But if you look at things like gold, historically, the average portfolio is so overweight equities. They have virtually nothing in gold compared to they did in the 70s and 80s. And I think that pendulum is going to swing back as if you and I hopefully have a conversation like this 10 years from now. Well, I, I certainly hope for hope so. It'd be really good for me and every narrative that I've been pushing <laughs> for, for the last few years. It would make me look great. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you, you've touched on QE. Um, you know, it's obviously not a new phenomenon. Uh, we've seen a decade of increasing QE and money printing. Whether people were talking about it as much or not, I, I don't know. But it seems like it's gone parabolic now. And, and um, it would be fair to say it's too late to... Uh, stuff the, you know, you know what, back in the horse at this point, right? I mean, there's no way to pay this debt, is there? Well, that's a key thing. We all know that. I think all everybody really gets it. There, oh, there is. Oh, there's clearly a way. The debt's in dollars. And all you have to do is print dollars. Okay, <laughs> well, pay the debt with the money important. that you're printing, right? Yeah. yeah the debt will be paid. The U.S. government will never default. And I did say never. And, um, I'm not worried about that because it'll just be paid in just print more money. That's all it is. It's it's obligations of U.S. government. The key point I like to make about QE and everybody, glad you glad you brought that up is what was unconventional, very unconventional. Two thousand and eight is now become conventional. It's just expected. And there's one thing I have to do as a strategist: analyze what I get wrong to focus on what I get right. One of the key things I really got wrong this year was. I fully expected the most amount of QE ever, partly because those of us who read Ben Bernanke's book, The Courage to Act, just, we all knew that was just going to, the minute the stock market goes down, that's just what the government Fed does, especially if it sees a recession. Why not? Because that's what they're supposed to do, particularly when we're in a significantly deflationary environment. I say deflation, let's look at the world's most significant commodity. In 2008, it was 145. Now it's 39. That's deflation. Now, there's inflation in financial assets. So to me, that's one thing I got wrong. I, I fully expected the market to think that too, but it didn't. It, it took that as a wonderful thing. We buy the stock market. So I never thought we'd make new highs and here we are, but it's still, I was right on gold and I still full think, think gold and Bitcoin will be primary beneficiaries. And Bitcoin right now is, I'm very happy of what it's doing based on what's happening to QE. First off, we all know QE is not going to end. And what it's going to take to end, even, even, um, Fed Chairman Powell says they don't see an end to it. Um, it's going to take markets at some point. So might as well just allocate a proper property. Take your those pieces of paper we earn, put them in assets that are safer and diversify. Be careful with buying equities at the all-time high. So, and also a key thing I like to point out is debt to GDP. Debt to, to GDP. Right now in the U.S. it's about 140%. It was really about 100% average there from 2012 to this year, and it kept going up despite the biggest expansion in U.S. history. So what do we know? where's that ending? It's not, there's no way to stop it. Then let's look at human nature. What politician is going to get elected by telling populists, we're gonna increase austerity, we're gonna increase your taxes and reduce your benefits? We need a depression, it's, right? <laughs> it's classic human nature, it's, there's been every, I mean, even on your program, I've read and heard about some of your guests talking about these resets, going back to the Greek times. And it will be a reset. Hopefully it won't be too bad. But as prudent investors and citizens, we're supposed to be prudent with our money and, and be careful with what we earn as a piece of paper that we can still pay our taxes in and put it in prudent investments. So because I it's just I don't see how this MMT QE debt to debt to debt to GDP trend is going to end 
um, without something other than some pretty significant discombobulation in markets. Roundthex.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is take all your small purchases and round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that spare change into any of over 30 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can view various exchange balances all in one dashboard and round up into different assets all at the same time, and they do all this without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Go to roundthex.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin. Diginex is making huge moves and is soon to be the first crypto exchange listed on the NASDAQ. This means that people will finally be able to invest on a platform they're comfortable with without being directly exposed to Bitcoin. Absolutely massive for mainstream adoption. Diginex has basically everything investors need under a single roof, including an institutional-grade exchange called Equus. Equus allows institutional and retail investors alike access to an exchange that's on par with platforms they've come to trust in other markets. This means they are compliant with regulation, transparent and fair with regards to fees and orders, secure and far ahead of the curve in regards to innovation. Go to equus.com slash wolf to get 5% off trading fees. That's E-Q-U-O-S dot com slash W-O-L-F to get 5% off of your trading fees. Sign up now. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard about the DeFi craze in crypto. By far the safest and simplest way to passively earn in the space is to hold your coins on Celsius. You can earn your rewards in the same crypto you're holding, or you can earn even more in their sell token. Right now, I choose to earn 5% on Ethereum in Ethereum and 15% on my stable coins in sell token. It's a little bit better than the sub 1% interest rates you can earn in a legacy bank account. Celsius was founded with the belief that crypto is the opportunity to really shake up the financial system. They're changing the standards for all financial services. They share 80% of their revenue in the form of weekly reward payments. That's how their users are earning up to 15% APY with compounding rewards. They also commit to providing the lowest cost loans on the market. Their loans start at just 1% APR. For just 1% interest, you can borrow cash against your crypto and avoid selling, which also eliminates the taxable event. It's absolutely huge. High rewards on your holdings and low interest on loans on a platform whose mission you can believe in. Celsius is giving $20 to every new user that joins with promo code WOLF. Just enter the code in the app during registration. $20 is awarded after 30 days of maintaining a wallet balance of $200 or more. Visit celsius.network, that's C-E-L-S-I-U-S dot network, and use promo code WOLF, W-O-L-F. When I was a kid, they told us, save your money, right? Put it in a savings account, put it in a bank, let it grow. You cannot save money anymore. Well, that's a key thing. You can't, it's, it's like a lot of our, your guests and people I listen to is, I remember getting passbook savings and my mother was great about it. I was in the seventies. I was getting 12, 13%. This was awesome. Let me put my paper money in there. And, um, but that's the key thing I point out to my kids. Now you must, if you, it's almost imprudent to not allocate some of your earnings to as much as possible. Now buy some physical property. If you can't afford that now, which most of my kids can't yet, they're adults, but have to put in some things like Bitcoin and gold. Yes, the stock market, but more the physical assets. Because my thought is, here's my, my thought is Bitcoin is becoming prudent because of what we're doing with our money. And it's not 
really wrong. The whole world's doing it. It started in Japan. I mean, I traded JGBs 20 years ago when they first went to zero interest rates. And now it's, it's Europe. If we expect this trend to end, then just look at the domino. So money used to pay an interest. And that's the key thing I always like to point out when people say, look at this piece of paper versus gold. Gold's here and this dollar's here. Well, that's not a proper measure because that dollar used to earn interest and they would add it to the value, but it doesn't anymore. And that, that to me is why it's so important to take that money, save it, but it's where you save it. Passbook savings, you don't get it. You have I, to uh, open up an account and allocate some to cryptos, maybe some equities. And as I tell my kids, borrow as much as possible, lock in those rates and buy property. Yeah, I did that literally like this month. <laughs> I just, just, just bought a, a huge lot because why not? I mean, debt is so incredibly cheap. You know, I mean, first of all, people don't realize it's funny. I took a home equity loan and I've been, it's one of those things I've been meaning to do for so long anyways, because obviously a prudent person takes a home equity loan when they don't need it because they won't be able to get it when they do. Right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, I mean, getting, you know, debt at sub 3% to, to buy something that appreciates faster. It's just such a no brainer, but I think it's just so important for people to realize that, I mean, money is not for saving anymore. It's really for spending or buying something that you can save. But, you know, most people haven't gotten there uh, with Bitcoin being a part of that. You clearly have, I clearly have, and, and the people listening to this likely have. But how do your colleagues, how do you know, what's the sentiment around Wall Street, do you think, about Bitcoin? Because in 2017, they were laughing at us. Yeah, well, that's perfect. I mean, you never get a good um, valued asset when everybody agrees with you. That's what I want to hear. It's a lesson I learned day one in the pits. When everybody disagrees with you, here's a lesson I like to say. When, when I'd have a trade idea and I'd show it out to seven customers on the phones and they all say, oh, Mike, you're an idiot. It's a good, dumb idea. I knew it'd work. When they all agreed with me, it never worked. Um, and to me, that's a similar case right now. There's, I'm, I'm sensing there's a wave coming. People are starting to get it. Starting to understand, okay, um, my, dollars are a great form of money, but not a good store of value. Bitcoin is not a good form of money, or gold is not a good form of money, but it's a potentially, Bitcoin could be one of the hardest stores of value in history. It could be, and maybe it'll fail, but I'm not willing to bet my whole, you know, that's why I say you just got to have some portion into it. So to me, that's, I was just on a, um, a, a crypto breakfast this morning where people are starting to understand it. It's coming. An ETF is just a matter of time. If you use one key um, indicator, and that's just the increasing open interest in U.S. listed futures, that's a sign of liquidity coming into space. Backed futures are coming. Soon as it's just a matter of time, that's depth has enough depth. But when that when an ETF is launched, where's the price of Bitcoin going to be? So it needs to fail for this not to happen. And by failing, the price needs to go down a lot. And I don't know what's going to take for that to happen. All my indicators are positive. So my sense is, quick answer is, I mean, quick summary is, everything's coming that way, but it generally doesn't happen as fast as people want to. But when it does come, it happens all at once. Yeah, and then they're going to flood in. And I think that there's a lot of institutional money that just can't get in at this price and this market cap anyways. It's just not big enough, right? So, I mean, they can laugh at it in that, in that regard, but I mean, it's really hard to move a significant amount of money if you're a pension or you know some kind of institutional fund you can't really be that exposed i find that narrative very unique that it's almost self-fulfilling that market cap will increase yeah i mean you've got to get there 
Yeah, it's got it's well, it doesn't have to, but it should, because the more it goes higher, it creates more demand. That's a unique thing I've never seen. I mean, you have FOMO, but supply will not increase. But every time the price goes up and we have greater market cap, there's more people who can get in. That's very unique. I've never seen that. And uh, and when we don't increase supply. So what's it going to take for that to go backwards at the moment? I don't know, but I can really see the potential upside. I wonder what the price equivalent uh, will be at that market cap where they can really come flooding in. <laughs> That's the thing. What's the inflection? And you, it just, the point is every time the market cap increases, it, it opens up to a broader scope and um, audience, which is very unique. And again, let's just put ourselves 10 years from now. Um, it has to at least, at least fail or something, some kind of legislation or something I can't predict, or it just keeps doing what it's been doing, which I think is more likely as the world goes digital, as we, in the next 10 years, I think we can all agree, we'll probably see a, a bear market in the stock market at some point, maybe it only lasts two years. It, typically they last a couple of years, not just a correction. And that to me will be the key reset. Once we get past that period of the bear market is when I think, in the stock market is I think we'll see a bit of a nadar I'm sorry, once we get near a bottom in the next bear market in the stock market, we'll see a bit of a peak in gold and Bitcoin. And we're nowhere near even the, the beginning of the stock bear market because that to me is the flow that's needed because the whole world knows you can't get any money, you can't earn in fixed income anymore. So you've had to be in the stock market. Now we push prices so high that it's just inconceivable they continue at the same pace and then normal history means that you have to have mean reversion. So basically, mean reversion is inevitable at every market. It's just a matter of patience. <laughs> well, if um, unless it's changed this time, which is one of those famous words in Wall Street, right? I don't yeah. think it's changed. It's yeah. The timing. <laughs> it's different but, this time, right? But I mean, you're right, exactly, which I touched on earlier. I mean, but, you know, you're a trader. You've been down there. The, the hardest part is determining when that's going to happen, right? I mean, usually, and, and especially with something as volatile as Bitcoin, I've seen people who yeah. are strong, strong believers, 100,000, 500,000, a million dollar Bitcoin, but have lost almost all of their Bitcoin trying to trade around their position. That's my, my buy, forget it. <laughs> Just, I don't know, dollar cost average. Uh, it's like you might be doing, you my might man. be able to do it. I used to love, you know, in the trading pitch, you learn real quick. So if you lose down there, these are called locals, you lose your house, the wife divorces you. It happens a lot. And you only hear about the one out of 10 that make it. The other nine, their story's not told because they're not telling, no one's bragging about losing. That's just life in trading. I look at these um, cryptocurrencies and certainly I'm at this stage as a strategist is I'm not addressing trading. It's okay to trade a little bit around the position, but um, there's times to overweight and underweight. Now, 2017 was a time to lighten up, definitely. I mean, we all know it's parabolic. And I think just like gold this year, we're supposed to be looking at overweighting depending on how you measure that. And that's up to the visual investor. You, you touched on a, a point earlier that's really interesting. You talked about being wrong this year and you sort of said it casually and you're like, this is one thing I was wrong about as an analyst, whatever, and you brushed past it. And I always talk about um, or think about how to me, the, the core competency of a trader is to basically be unaffected by wrong or right, right? Just be profitable. <laughs> um, be wrong small and be right big, I guess. How did you <laughs> learn that lesson? Because when you're young and you're trading, for almost everyone I've ever met, you lose money because you want to be right. Uh, the best way I've learned a lesson is to not trade. <laughs> I, 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 
<laughs> so I have I have a the 19 year old who's been playing around with markets a little bit, and I've been trying to teach him the lessons. That then one lesson I learned is you're always um, when you're right, you never have enough in a position, and you're wrong, you always have too much. And and I'm sure this I can see a smile on your face. Everybody who's listening to us gets that, and that's why I like to think. Um, just I've learned as a former trader, it can be such a mentally taxing thing to do to be caught up in positions and I found that I wasn't good at it um, and took away from so many different productive things in life that I found it's better just to hey I think gold is undervalued bitcoins undervalued and equity markets overvalued just stick with anytime I get more funds focus on those put it away and forget about it and if it's too much that bothers me then it's too much and I should lighten up and if it so gets it, stupid, stupid high then you take some off the table but right now it's just meh yeah I mean <laughs> invest and rebalance. It's not the most complicated uh, thing in the world, but people have such a hard time doing it. I find in this market too, that people are basically all in as traders and are not trading around a, a core position, which I find, you know, problematic. I'm curious as to what you think a proper portfolio allocation is for someone who insists that they must trade. What percentage of their portfolio um, should well, they possibly it, be trading with? Well, um, I, I'm... What I'm hearing now, I think standard for anybody now is one to two percent allocation to um, Bitcoin, depending on how you measure that of your um, investable assets, and then trickle up from from there. Now that could be there's people like we'll say they're up to ten percent, and a lot of people listening to this program I think are closer to ten percent, but at some points they might might be leveraged up to hundred percent. Remember when you talk about leverage, those of us who come from futures market. Uh, excuse me, that's part of life. <laughs> it just, I remember you should get, you know, you, your margin was five, six, 10% and you're trading everything else. So um, here, here's one mention, lesson I want to say to people about um, leverage trading is when you buy a home, who puts 100% down? No one. Some people do. I mean, except some crypto people who held on and never traded. Typically, <laughs> <laughs> you put down 20% or less. So that's a leveraged position. So leverage is okay as long as you manage it properly. But I think I'm not, I'm just not an advocate of the trading, partly because Bender done that and didn't do it well. I mean, but you said nine out of 10 people completely fail. And I've seen that it's actually 95%. So we can cut that 10th yeah. person in half. And <laughs> um, yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it because oh, of the emotions getting the best of them? Uh, yeah. Is it because the human nature? So let's look at the equity market now. FOMO, um, you know, um, everybody's getting in Mr. Portnoy and everything. He, when you have people like that tempting the market gods, it's a lesson you learn in trading bets. Never tempt the market gods. Like, oh, how easy this is, how I made so much money, because they will always get you. Because there's a, there's a, you know, <laughs> there's the market gods out there. I've learned that lesson. The house always <laughs> wins. Right. How, well, always if you, if, you know, if the market's just, you know, never rule number, rule number one is you never get fired for taking some profits. But here's a little lesson I learned, for instance, about Apple. I bought an Apple just a few years ago on the dip and I made 200% in like no time. To me, that's a problem. Something's wrong there. That's too easy. And I learned that lesson. So I lightened up a lot of it. When it's too easy, something's wrong. Typically, you need to have pain. You need to be... Um, and just like some of the best people who made a lot of money in Bitcoin just held on. You know, that's where we came up with the, you know, the word holdle because they yeah. dropped a lot of their assets and just hang on. Um, but you have to believe in the fundamentals and don't trade. Just allocate. Yeah, people joke that those people were lucky who were early, but I say that they had the strongest hands in history to, to hold through that sort of volatility yeah. and price and to maintain that level of belief. You can say that they were lucky that they found out about it in 2010, but to not yeah. sell it at $500 yeah. 
Or to well, sell, not sell it at a thousand dollars. You true. know, I mean, you don't hear the stories. You do some, but it's not public headlines. We have all the people who said bought it at one or two and sold it at ten. One good example is my son, who's in medical school now, introduced it to me in 2011 or 12. And I was like, what is it? Silly internet money? He started mining everything and he forgot about it and threw away his laptop. Tons of stories. Are they lost in Mount Gox? Um, And no, he's doing fine. It's probably better. He'll graduate medical school soon. But just those are the majority. And that's the majority. You have to have a lot of dust on the road. You have to have a lot of, unfortunately, I don't say the word, bodies before the few that survive can tell the story. So you heard about it first in like 2011 from your son, 2012. When did you decide to take it seriously? Um, it's hard to say exactly. Oh, when it, when it first met the price of gold, which I think was 2013, um, the per ounce price of gold. That's when I thought, oh, something's going on here. And then, of course, it dropped. It, it got up to around, I think gold was around 1,000. Yeah. So and a little bit more. And then it dropped yeah. all the way down to two to 300. And then I kind of gave up on it. But and as I came here in 2016, then I started really blaming it. And certainly, um, as we've had this consolidation period around 10,000, to me, that's what you need, is you need a um, period of disdain, which we've had, underperformance, <laughs> sure. which we've had, and a correction from the peak, which we've had. Those are classic signs in markets where people are supposed to be reallocating. And it's a period of massive breakout rallies that you got to be careful and maybe lighten up a little bit. But overweight when you see disdain, which is what I like and see now and then underweight a little bit when you, when it just, when you feel like you're making too much money. <laughs> uh, when your Uber driver is telling you about uh, the, the, yeah, the shares that they bought in Bitcoin, right? <laughs> classic signs. Well, that's what, you know, the, you know, they say they came back to Joseph Kennedy, but I find that that's different. Now I find Uber drivers, some of the smartest, best people I've ever um, experienced. They're just, for example, then, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's the taxi drivers a bit. They speak of the English that I'm kind of concerned. They usually don't. You know, I remember the first time I came to New York in 1990, I told the taxi driver, oh, take me to the New York Stock Exchange. He didn't understand me and he didn't know where it was. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. Yeah, that's not a not not the not yeah, the Uber car drivers. that you want to get into. Yeah, they were yeah, drivers. We have GPS. <laughs> How great. impressive were taxi drivers before GPS, by the way? Most people like probably don't oh. even remember that you literally need to needed to know, especially in New York City. I mean, imagine being a taxi yeah. driver in New York City and knowing every street in Staten Island and Brooklyn and Queens. It's it's the knowledge in London. That's what I love about the uh, the taxi, the black the black drivers there. Yeah, the, the every taxi. street. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah my dad. Yeah, my dad used to rave to me yeah. about uh, the, the the drivers in London. How uh, they incredible the they were! And they're the really... Yeah, they're always the best because they know how to get tips. Just come, come, you know, speak with your customers and get a better tip. So I'm curious. Um, you obviously, uh, you know, commodities is is your specialty. Commodities strategy there. Is that how Bloomberg officially considers Bitcoin or does it just happen to be on your radar? Is there a crypto department? <laughs> it, 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 it's on Bloomberg's radio radar less so because it really concerned with the um, lack of robustness in the data. Bloomberg was looking at things at coinmarketcap.com and, and data people told me they were shocked by the lack of due diligence and robustness and things like that. So they're starting to bring data on the terminal, but Bloomberg has been reluctant as a firm because of Space is very dicey. Now, I've been a major push, the person pushing this ahead. I'm the main person in BI who covers cryptos, and we're going to be bringing in more resources. Um, so the opinions you hear are mine uh, as a strategist, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I write my view on the terminal using data, and this is why. Um, 
but I have to be careful. I don't give that investment advice. So when we say Bloomberg, I say I work for Bloomberg, but I'm a, a, a research strategist working with Bloomberg. It's people some say, oh, sometimes say, oh, they heard that on from Bloomberg. I'm like, well, that was from this guy named Mike McGlone who wrote at Bloomberg. And I might have different opinions from someone else on gold and the dollar for someone who sits right next to me. Both will publish it. And that's what I love about this firm. And we let the reader decide versus I've been at other shops and the senior guy would say, oh, no, you're going to need to be bearish gold because I am. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, my favorite. I think my favorite kind of financial fake news is when something's reported like Goldman Sachs says as if they've taken a position when then you read it and yeah. it's like some random analyst it's said something. Goldman Sachs. Right. <laughs> and it's never presented that way. Right. One yeah, of my favorites was that, yeah. that Warren Buffett was buying gold. That was one of my favorite uh, false yeah. headlines of late. <laughs> yeah. A little fake news, right? You know, I uh, know he's buying Barrick, which has yield, and uh, the guy still probably would never own a bar of gold. Well, I'm glad you brought him in because he's a classic example of, he always liked to point out the, the good way to measure U.S. stocks is the, the market capitalization of the U.S. stock market versus GDP. Now, I've simplified that. I'm just using the price of the S&P 500, the market cap of the S&P 500 versus GDP. It's the highest ever. I'm like, okay, well, do you want to be overweighting equities here or do you want to be overweighting gold and cryptos and, and Bitcoin? And my view is more the latter. What's your take on the rest of cryptocurrency beyond Bitcoin? Does the buck stop there for you or do you uh, have interest in any of the other coins? Simplistic analysis, too much supply is a problem. So I, I'm, becoming, I'm coming around a little bit to um, agreeing with Ethereum might be coming a bit of the um, Bitcoin of the space in terms of the macro because of DeFi and DEXs and stuff and, you know, it's the platform might be winning, but there's so much competition. So let's simplistically look at the amount of cryptos on coinmarketcap.com. Over 7,000. Last year, 3,000. The year before, so it was 1,000. It's just, I get it. It's fine. But as a simplistic strategist, massive amount of supply, ease of entry. Virtually everybody I speak to, we've got a great team. We're smart. We've got a better version of so-and-so. I'm like, okay, that's the problem. And so, I mean, look at, so here's a key fact. If you look at the current trends and market cap of Ethereum and Tether, Tether will became, become number two in marketcap.com by next year. That's yeah. a fact, if the trends yeah. continue. What's more likely is the Tether market cap appreciates and Ethereum, uh, it can, it can, they continue to do the same. So at some point, I expect we're going to see Bitcoin number one and Tether number two. Why? Because what are called cryptocurrencies are really mostly, most of them are, highly speculative digital assets. They're not currencies. Currencies right. are meat. It's a misnomer. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just so many of them, but that's why I like to differentiate. So I like to say, um, Satoshi Nakamoto didn't really create money. He created digital version of gold in Bitcoin. And, um, Tether is to me is becoming a great form of money. I mean, you can knock it around for transaction. It's so based fast. on the world's reserve currency and you're going to want to spend it and use it. But saving, uh, okay, if I got a little extra Tether dollars, I'll put it in the Bitcoin and let it sit there. So Tether's the answer for the dollar in that ecosystem and you don't really need anything else. I mean, Ethereum, as you touched on, it is really interesting because it's actually being used. I mean, it's inefficient yeah. and gas fees yeah. are ridiculous, but it is actually being used. And I think that um, DeFi isn't going anywhere. Have you dug into DeFi at all at, as a general trend? I mean, I, I'm not talking about the yams and potatoes and hot dogs and all the insanity but you know as a new form of banking decentralized finance itself i don't see what's going to stop it 
to me, it's just a matter of time. I like to look at the, what's it, 9 billion or so, depending on how you measure it now. I like to look at the trends as this is a good indication so of where fast. things are going. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, I just, and I think, and I love it's, uh, the technology. I mean, I just love new and efficient technologies that make life better. I'm, I mean, I've got an electric car, I've got solar panels. To me, that's what it is. It's just global. It helps, you know, some of the um, lower tiers part of society get in the game. And to me, it's just a matter of time. I just don't know as much details. I watch it as partly an indication for overall prices. My first connection is to Ethereum. Um, and, um, Bitcoin, but um, in the broad market, though, I still see as oversupply. But I, I just, I'm watching. I'm, I'm listening to programs like yours to getting to learn more. Do you think it reeks a bit of the sort of internet boom in the late '90s, early 2000s? I mean, it kind of to me, I, I see those echoes that there's just going to be this grand culling, and like 99% of these will disappear, but the ones that rise, you know, the Amazons will will do exceptionally well. But maybe um, too early to figure out which ones. Are, are going to do that. Amazon's versus pets.com. I remember being part of that. I remember one of my colleagues in my trading desk lost up to $400,000 in this internet company back in 2000. That didn't work out so well. No, it didn't. Life savings. She just wasn't in the right one. Unfortunately. <laughs> and no, and it was part, you know, as, not, as part of, you know, leaving the business and being in the business, investing her own money and being part of the business, not as a trader. Just that's the way it is. Crazy. Never, never be all in. <laughs> I think that's, exactly. that's the lesson there. So, I, I mean, you've basically weathered every single storm in the past few decades, right? I mean, you've been through that, that boom and bust, the global recession. And now, obviously, we've had this COVID scare and whatever's happening here. Do you think that COVID having that experience, do you think that COVID was just a catalyst for something that was coming anyways? Or do you think that it really was the reason for this sort of dip? And, you know, uh, I'm talking about markets, obviously, economy is different. I had no clue about COVID coming. um, And it did. I was bearish in markets. I was bullish gold, bullish Bitcoin, bearish crude oil and commodities. Anyhow, COVID could just accelerate in that process. The way I like to say it is now that we've had it, it should I get less bearish crude oil and more bullish gold um, probably stay the same in gold. And I don't see why I should get bullish crude oil because <laughs> it's just going away and COVID just created a global recession. But to me, one thing, a thing about is the way I look at it is it's um, really a good example of human nature and something that was kind of way overdue. We needed a bit of a global, and, and it's global basis, a bit of a reset, um, um, which is happening in consumer spending and this, especially in this country. Now it's all being offset by fiscal monetary um, spending, but I think it's just a sense that you just need that period where consumers pull back, markets reset, and then we all go back up. Problem is the market didn't reset. That's why I'm confused. Um, And it hasn't, but I think it will. So you don't, you don't, you don't consider the March uh, bottom to be a true bottom for a bear market or recession. No, no, it's not a bear market. Reactionary. Right. Well, by my turn. Yeah. That's a correction in a bull market. That's all this. A bear market typically, you know, how you define it is it goes down. Years. 30, 40% stays down for years and people give up. Just like Bitcoin. And here's a good bear market, gold. It went up to about 1900. It dropped to 1000 and it stayed down for five years. It did and it took, now it's been nine years since we took out that old high. People, when I was talking about gold, you had bullish gold five years ago, they thought I was an idiot, which is fine. It was just meant, you know, I just take this great, cool. I know I'm going to be right then. So to me, that's a good bear market. Now, the equity market is at the most extreme example of a bull market I've ever seen. 
even worse than the internet bubble 2000, so which I think means the reset's going to be that much more painful. And right. hopefully not. Maybe I'll be wrong. But the way I like to point is, if I'm outperforming equities with this rock that's gold, then stick with the rock. It's pretty, pretty simple. But I mean, in that context, the 2017 bubble for Bitcoin and the subsequent 80 plus percent drop was really not abnormal, correct? No, it's mean, just like the internet bubble. Just like the internet bubble. But remember, yeah, internet bubble and that went down and stayed down from, for almost 10 years. And I, I, you know, well, remember Bitcoin did that 2013 to it peaked at 13 or so and then stayed down. And it, it took till 2017 to take out that high. So four years. So it should can take more longer to take out the, it could take longer to take out the 2017 high. But no, that was a good bear market that got overdone. And many ways in NASDAQ's, um, in the stock markets, more, like I said, in terms of global GDP, it's more of a value now than it was in 2000. Yeah. What are your favorite signals of, um, I don't want to say tops and bottoms because trying to call those is a fool's errand, but obviously when you're in a bear market, what are your favorite signals of capitulation that the weak hands are being shaken out that people have truly given up? Are there any? It's a classic right now. I'm hearing from a lot of the money managers I know and I used to work with that it's FOMO. If they're not in the equity markets, their clients fire them. There's a, and these managed money people. So that's classic, which is a sign that, you know, it's, it's coming to an end soon. Um, to get fired because you're not you're not making as much as your neighbor is who's in Amazon is I mean as a manager is very very um, disconcerting but you know these things can last a while you never can pick pee. Yeah. Right, I mean people just, that that's probably been those money managers' experience for years uh, in theory. Oh, yeah. So and, and yeah, that was I remember in 1999, um, 88 we had a little correction, but classic signs that uh, boy if you're not in it. Yeah, you're you're an idiot. And everybody was a fool who wasn't buying pets.com, and then we all became less foolish. I, I want to just go back real quick right before we end to the idea of the election here. I think I agree that Biden is likely to win based on the same factors that you are, and maybe that would be cause some sort of correction or maybe dip after the election. But in the in the coming months, don't you think that it would behoove the existing administration to make sure that the stock market doesn't drop or do everything in their power to avoid oh, that? That's why I was kind of joking with one of my funny manager's friends is those people who don't want President um, Trump to get elected should sell these other stocks because the stock market going down and lack of fiscal stimulus tilts, tilts the bias towards the Biden um, election. So, oh, yeah, it was very simple. I was teasing him around. Hey, if you, you know, you want to Biden to win, sell your stocks. In that context, it just kind of surprises me that the dollar has been ripping so hard this week. <laughs> like, you know, well, that's, because... that's, that's a short term thing. One thing to remember about the dollars, it's risk off globally and that's always goes to the dollar. But big picture, what's been driving the dollar for the last 10 years? The U.S. equity market outperforming the rest of the world. That's shifting. So um, it's a little transition. That's where you have to work, you know, decipher the difference between the transition and the big trend is. If the U.S. Market, equity market starts underperforming, which at some point it will, it always has, it you know, goes through cycles, um, then the dollar will follow. And then, of course, remember the dollar, trade-weighted broad dollars, how you, I measure it, because that's really the big picture way to do it. At some point, it should um, potentially peaking, which is good for gold and Bitcoin. But one thing you always remember about the dollar, it's measured versus other paper money. I like to measure versus gold. And so right. you look at the trade-weighted broad dollar, it's at the same level it was um, it's come back, same level it was at the beginning of 2016, and then um, gold's up about 80%. That's the virgin strength. It means gold's just looking ahead to at some point, 
being valued. Remember, dollar denominated gold. You look at gold in terms of virtually yeah. every other currency on the planet, it's much higher. It's so funny that that was one of the most eye-opening things for me was one day somebody posted a stock market versus Bitcoin, stock market versus gold, stock market versus dollar chart. And you're like, stocks never go up, uh, stop going up. But in reality, it's just the value, the buying power of the dollar going down when you put it against uh, any of these hard assets. It's just it does not look the same, right? Well, that's the key thing. Gold's a store of value. I mean, you can buy the same men's suit or home in the, in the same amount of ounces as you could thousands of years ago, typically, or a hundred years ago. Um, that's, it has been doing what it's supposed to do. So I'm going to be publishing tomorrow on debt to GDP versus U.S. debt to GDP. Gold is unchanged for 13 years now. It's just going up with debt. And debt right now is 140%. This year, is, in terms of debt to GDP, gold's a meh. It's just gone up the same amount the debt to, debt to GDP increased. It's, that's why I look at people say, oh, gold's going to go down. I'm like, what are you under, not understanding about the foundation for gold? QE, debt to GDP. That's, a bit, that's the foundation below um, the price of gold. All right, man. Well, I know we're up against it here. So uh, where can everybody find you and keep up with you uh, after this? Well, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, most notably because of professional exposure with the Bloomberg Muscle on um, Twitter, Mike McGlone 11. So just look for me there. I'm happy and, and I'm happy to, um, to, to link with people and to, to, to share emails and things. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and we're going to have to do this again after the election and see where it all shakes out. <laughs> looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to listening to your programs because they really make my weekends. I, I learn a lot and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I mean, it's because of guests like you. I just, uh, I just sit here and listen and learn. That's, that's my goal. So, uh, it's like a free college education. It's amazing. Well, thank you again. That's dope.